Psalm 51, 10, one verse. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I want to talk to you for a few minutes on a right spirit. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. A right spirit. And by the way, uh, for those watching online, but especially for those of you here and for the crowd, our goal is to make this Wednesday night one hour. And uh, that's sometimes a little challenge for me on Wednesday nights, but I watch the clock. Sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. But I am aware of it usually all the time. A right spirit. Uh, when I feel a message, a passage of scripture, I almost always go back and search my computer. When have I talked about this before? Have I addressed this before? I thought, I don't remember ever teaching on a right spirit, but I know I've taught on Psalm 51. So I went back and looked, and on January 16th and then on the 23rd, two consecutive Thursday nights when we had church on Thursday, I, I taught on Psalm 51 in two messages that were entitled Beyond Repentance. Repentance and then what is the full effect of that? And I checked with, with Ryan and these are not in our current archives so you couldn't go back and look at them. But in those two messages I went through and I just reviewed it quickly today uh, in pretty great detail, verse by verse, uh, the first half of Psalm 51, King David's prayer of repentance. But tonight I want to focus just on this one phrase and I'll go back into the psalm some. But David's words renew a right spirit within me. I found in uh, 43, almost 43 years of ministry, 42 official years of ministry, that most people think they have a right spirit. Whether they do or not. But most people think they do because gen generally... We all want to have a right spirit. We want to think the right way, do the right things. Our intentions are generally good. We want to have a right spirit. And we all want to believe that we have a right spirit. Accusing someone of having a bad spirit is pretty serious. And I found sometimes when you had a question about something... People go, you've got a bad spirit. No, I don't have a bad spirit. I have a question. I need help. I want truth. I'm not just going to accept this on face value. I want to dig this out. I really don't want to have a bad spirit. I just want an answer. So when you say someone has a bad spirit, you know, it's hard to react to that and respond. I don't have a bad spirit. <laughs> I didn't until you accused me of having a bad spirit, and now I do. Um, you can't really win that argument and prove that you have a good spirit. And you can't prove when you don't have a bad spirit. So we're going to go with the assumption tonight that everybody here and everyone watching online has a right spirit. How's that? Because we all want to have a right spirit. But just in case at some future time in your life you struggle with a bad spirit, then we're going to look at Psalm 51 to how do you get and how do you keep a right spirit. Through the years, I usually have a decent memory, at least at this point in my life, of things I've said in the past and things I've repeated on purpose. And uh, I've shared with you before, but not, not officially maybe in a message, um, that T.L. Kraft, Brother Kraft, who was my pastoral mentor 
in Jackson, Mississippi, and went to Bible college there, served there almost 10 years. But he said multiple times, privately to me and then to just in teaching or preaching, don't ever let anything mess up your spirit. I don't know if that was original to him or not, but it stuck in my spirit. It stuck in my mind. Don't ever let anything mess up your spirit. Because, you know, sometimes people change. When you come to God and turn from your sins and repentance, you're baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, God puts his spirit inside of you. It's a good spirit. It is a right spirit. But along the way, that right spirit is going to be challenged, tested, tempted, and to maintain or renew a right spirit can become a lifelong challenge. So I may say a few times tonight, don't ever let anything mess up your spirit. And I say it in that down-home way on purpose, just as it was said to me. The disciples of Jesus once prided themselves in having a right spirit. They thought they were just exactly on point with how God felt. Jesus, Luke chapter 9, records this. They went uh, through a village of the Samaritans, and Jesus was headed to Jerusalem, and his face was set to go there. He was determined to go there. So when they went to this village of the Samaritans, they didn't receive him because they could see in his countenance that he was kind of going through there. There's, you know, I've tried to figure out what were they thinking and how was he looking, but they didn't really receive Jesus when he went through Samaria. So when his disciples, James and John, you know, those he named the sons of thunder, when they said that, they went to Jesus and they said, Lord, we want you to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elijah did. Now, they would have never said that to Jesus if they didn't think they had a right spirit. They would have never said that out loud. Now, they, there were times they thought things that they didn't want Jesus to know they were thinking and he perceived their thoughts and called them out because he knows our thoughts, right? But these James and John are saying this because they think Jesus is going to commend them, pat them on the back. They can see the fire falling. They can see the Samaritans, you know, being burnt alive. And they're just really looking for this to happen like it happened when Elijah called down fire from heaven on the captain of 50 and his 50 men twice, right? So these trusted disciples thought they had a right spirit. They thought they were reflecting the way that God thought and felt. But Jesus looked at them and said, this is Luke 9.55, he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. Now, wait a second. We think we've got a right spirit. And Jesus says, you've got a wrong spirit. You've got a bad spirit. In fact, you don't even really know what that spirit that you're representing by your thinking and your words right now, you don't even know what that spirit is aligned to. It is not aligned to my spirit, to the spirit of Jesus. And then he tells them how he thinks 
as compared to how they felt. For the Son of Man, verse 56, is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, and they went into another village. You want to kill these people? I want to save them. You don't know what spirit you're of. Your way of thinking is foreign to my way of thinking. Your attitudes are polar opposite of mine, Jesus told them. So the test of our spirit, whether we have a right spirit or a wrong spirit, I may say bad spirit, wrong spirit, the test of that is measured by one thing. It is measured by the Bible. And I don't mean that you can just hold up your Bible, but but why what the Bible says. About what the Bible teaches about what a right spirit is and what a right spirit is not. It's tested by the Bible. Now, if you get convicted by the Holy Ghost, then the Holy Ghost is very powerful and it can convict you of a bad spirit. But it will always convict you in harmony and alignment with the Bible. It's not going to speak to you outside of the Scripture. So that's why I hold the Bible up as the ultimate test because we can feel that God spoke to us and patted us on the back and said, good job. And the Bible would correct us and say, that's really not Jesus patting you on the back. That may be another force. Now, Psalm 51 is a model prayer of repentance by David. Repentance and restoration. We know him as the man after God's own heart. But there's a time in his life, he's got power, prestige, he has a lot of privilege, and he succumbs to temptation. He commits the sin of adultery with a woman named Bathsheba who becomes the mother of Solomon later. And I'm not going to go through all of the story or all the psalm. I'm going to give you a synopsis tonight of this. But then in an attempt to cover it up, David has Bathsheba's husband Uriah abandoned in the forefront of the battle where he is killed. So actually David is guilty now of murder. He allows Uriah to die. So... As you see, one sin conceives another. When you sin, you think, well, I'm just going to commit this sin and it will be in isolation and that will be the end of it. But sin always needs another sin. David's sin of lust leads to adultery and adultery leads to murder. And David feels like he's got it all covered up. He's the king. He's got all this privilege. Nine months later... Nathan the prophet confronts him, thou art the man. And David repents. Now all this time, from the time of the initial uh, adultery with Bathsheba until Nathan comes, David is still the king. He might have written a psalm between then and that period of time in the interim. And he's ruling and making decisions. But he's got this wrong spirit that he's trying to cover up with kingly behavior. And I've talked on this before, and I just want to pass by it. That when you feel the anointing of God, that is not always God's approval of your life. God's approval is on a life of holiness, that we, like the bride of Christ, are making ourselves ready. And people can feel a touch of God, even through the years, There are people that have written songs, sung songs, preached sermons while living in sin. I've never understood it. I could give you scriptural insight 
from John 15 about the, the vine and the branches and how there's life that remains in us and the gifts and calling of God are without repentance and history tells me that it just happens. But eventually you wither away and die and your soul is lost. So I don't know how David stayed there. God did not instantly kill him when he sinned. And sometimes we think that God must not really care about that. Psalm 73 says that God has set sinners in slippery places. It happens all at once as I preached about on Sunday. God can vindicate the righteous and he can condemn the wicked in just a moment of time. Now, David did not confess until he got caught. Now, I know this is obvious in this story, but I'll have to say for many years, I was suspicious about people who only confess when they got caught. It's a lot better if you confess when you sin rather than when you get caught. But I'll have to say that I was corrected by this scripture, not yesterday when I was studying today. A long time ago, I realized, you know what, David covered this up the best he could. But when Nathan confronted him, his repentance was thorough, it was deep, and it was sincere. And I believe that it is a mercy of God that people get caught. If you don't get caught, your future is a lake of fire. If you, get, if you sin, you get to confess and repent and make it right. And if you don't pass that test, then God in his mercy may allow you to get caught and when you get caught, you might be humiliated, but it's still another chance to go to heaven and be saved. That's an act of mercy. And if you're Ananias and Sapphira and God strikes you dead, that is an act of judgment. And that was not in the Old Testament. That was in the New Testament. So it can't happen. But David repented of his sin. Very sincere, very complete. There were consequences that he faced. The sword did not depart out of his house. Uh, Absalom, his son, betrayed him. He lived through a lot of serious consequences for that sin. The, the heathen had an occasion to blaspheme God. All of those things happened because of David's sin. But he lived through those years. And his thoughtful and thorough prayer of repentance in Psalm 51 is amazing. And, and I talked through this way back in 2014. I don't expect you to remember that. Some of you make notes in your Bibles. But I want to talk about repentance just a moment. Because repentance, and we will preach about repentance often on Sundays, but repentance is a change. The original word, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. It's a change of mind. And we say in practice it is a change of heart, mind, and life direction away from sin and toward God. It's a 180 turn. Repentance is not sorrow. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Repentance is not crying. Crying may have a, demonstrate a broken heart, but it may lead to repentance. But repentance is none of that. Repentance is a change. It is a turn. And until you turn from your sins, you have not really repented. Proverbs 28, 13 said, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh his sins shall have mercy. You confess your sins, and then you abandon them. You forsake them. Repentance begins with an admission of sins. When you read Psalm 51, and you may want to go back and read it this week, add it to your Bible reading, 
you know, he sinned against God. David admitted his sin, and then he confessed his sin. He turned his life to the Lord. Now, people who even say, Lord, forgive me, that is really not repentance. It's asking God to forgive you, but repentance on your part, on my part, is turning. Does that make sense? I can say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Well, I'll forgive you when you turn from them. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus preached repentance. Peter preached repentance. It is your first step toward God. Hebrews 6, it is a foundational doctrine. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God follows that. So repentance is a turn, all right? I just, I just felt like I needed to revisit that. But then there's this cleansing that David talks about. The washing away of the, re- the residue of sin in his life. I chose to not show these verses on the screen, but I want to read through the first part of this psalm. Uh, there's Psalm 51.0 in my digital Bible, but it's just the explanation of this psalm. To the chief musician, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to the, thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. There's amazing, there's like many Bible studies here, right? The blotting out of the handwriting of ordinances against us. The New Testament quotes this. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression, I admit it. And my sin is ever before me. Now, even though it wasn't before public, it wasn't public, but David always knew. He never got away that he was guilty. Against thee the only have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and clear when thou judgest. I chose the King James here. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. You may remember that when Israel came out of Egypt that a hyssop branch was dipped in blood and applied to the doorpost and the lintel. That's the imagery here of the hyssop dipped in the blood and the blood covering your sins. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. So much Incredible things about broken bones. And when Jesus died on the cross, not a bone of his was broken. Psalm 22, I believe, prophesied it. He submitted to death on the cross without him being forced to die. But the Lord, essentially, through these circumstances, broke David's bones where he would submit to the Lord. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Now our verse. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. I hear a couple of things about creating me a clean heart. Only God creates. And he's not praying that God would create something out of nothing as he did in the beginning. God said and it was. But he's asking God to create something in him that at that time did not exist. He knew that he did not have a clean heart. 
And when the Lord fills you with the Holy Ghost, He puts a clean heart in you. Jeremiah 33, Isaiah speaks about the heart that's going to be changed by the Holy Ghost. You and I cannot scrub our hearts enough to make them clean. That God can create in us a clean heart. David's heart had been defiled by sin. That cover-up that he attempted was symptomatic of a heart that was away from God, that was not clean at all. A spirit that was not right. So David's prayer here is create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit. So let's talk about just the word spirit a moment. Is David talking about Holy Spirit attitudes in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible actually when you hear soul, spirit, it could be a specific uh, reference or it can be a general reference to your entire mental and moral nature, your inner man. Uh, Proverbs 4.23, keep thine heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. So here it seems that David is asking God to renew in him a right spirit in his inner man, in his mind, his will, his emotion, the faculties that cause actions and decisions and attitudes because his spirit got messed up. His outlook, his, his view was skewed to lead him to do the things that he did that were so despicable. But he's now asking the Lord to renew a right spirit in him. The word right, right spirit, means firm, steadfast, or upright. It means a noble spirit. Because David's spirit, before this prayer, was not so noble, not upright, and not steadfast. Well, thinking about David's spirit, when did David have a right spirit? Because he asked the Lord to, you know, create me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew in me a right spirit. So it was something he had before that he lost. So did he have a right spirit when he was watching the sheep and writing psalms? Did he have a right spirit when he fought Goliath? Did he have a right spirit when he was made king? And if he at one time had a right spirit, like all of us believe and hope that we have a right spirit, like the Apostle Paul said, we trust we have, a good conscience, right? We believe we have a good conscience, but the Bible is that which tests it. And the Bible said that the Lord tries the reins, like someone that would test the reins of an animal, that God tests the reins of our heart. He, he knows what's going on inside of us. When did David lose his right spirit? Was it when he didn't go to war with his men? Because he stayed home that spring. Was it when he did not walk away from what he saw from his rooftop? Was that when his spirit changed? Was it when he committed adultery? Was it when he set up Uriah to be murdered? When did David's right spirit become wrong? What was the trigger of that? Now the reason I'm going down this line of reasoning is to help us be introspective and think about our own spirits. I'm not really just teaching to have something to say, right? I want, I want to examine my own spirit heart and make sure that somewhere along the way something didn't steal my right spirit. Something didn't defile my right spirit. I want to make sure 
that I have a right spirit. So, so how did David lose it? Obviously, when he committed sin, right? But the right spirit had to go wrong before he acted. Because sin is something that comes out of us. The action of sin is a belated announcement of what's going on inside of us. He didn't just one day go commit a sinful act. Something gone wrong in your life, especially a sin of this magnitude. And some people say all sin is the same. I don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Their sin has different consequences. They're great sins and immorality. The Bible said that sexual sins have these consequences. Every man sin that a man does is without the body. But when you commit sexual sins, you sin against your own body. There's a different effect of that type of sin. So just for what it's worth, you know, just thinking something and doing something are not the same. The, the path to making it right is not the same. You can think something wrong towards someone and just repent of it and only you and God knew. But if you say something to someone, now you make it right with God and you make it right with that person. And you haven't made it right with God until you've made it right with that person. You've made a larger circle of offense and now you've got to have a larger circle of reconciliation. So, anyway... Whatever he did, he forfeited this right spirit. I, I, I have to believe, I'm just trying to get in David's head a little bit. David had to think, this is wrong. Turn around. Walk away. I don't want to be too graphic. I know this is wrong, but I'm going to look anyway. I know this is wrong, but I'm going to sin for Bathsheba anyway. Oh, you're expecting a baby? Let's bring Uriah home and try to cover it up by him thinking it's his child. Oh, that doesn't work because Uriah is a better man than David at this point in his life and he's going to be faithful and won't even go into his house. Well, that cover-up didn't work. Well, I know this is wrong, but, but I've got to cover my back. So give the orders to put Uriah in the forefront of the battle. And when you know that he's going to be vulnerable, then do you retreat from him? You know, nobody would even believe that David had a right spirit then. But he's, re, he's rationalizing all of this. So how did he lose it? I, I think that losing that right spirit is when you choose to do what you know is wrong. You override your conscience. You override the Bible. Some people don't have that great of a conscience. I believe you do. I know it can be seared. It can be educated. A lot of things about the human conscience. But David had to override so many things that he knew that his spirit was just gone. Now, how did he renew it? Well, obviously, it started with a sermon. It was a personal message from Nathan the prophet, you know, he gave David a story about a lamb and a man that had many, and, and thou art the man. That was the punchline when he kind of gives, drives that home to David, and then David repents. And Psalm 51 does show this deep soul-searching prayer of David getting back on the path to a right spirit. A right spirit is restored through repentance. 
Suffering through consequences can chasten into you the character of God. Jeremiah talks about this. David regains his place in Scripture as a man who is after God's heart. Don't ever let anything mess up your spirit. And if you do, pray that God would renew in you a right spirit. What happens to people? What happens to people who have a right spirit and then they get soured? It gets wrong. I just want to give you a few thoughts. Being wronged can lead to a wrong spirit. I'm talking about somebody doing you wrong, offending you, hurting you, doing something to you. They are the perpetrator. You're the victim. But how you respond to that can maintain a right spirit or can lead to a wrong spirit. It seems like in our culture, there's a lot of cruelty, right? And, and I've found and heard on social media, it seems like there's, people are so unfiltered now. You know, cruel in what they say. Harsh criticisms against leaders, criticism against brothers and sisters and friends. And instead of just disagreeing, just like, just bam, just like destroying people with words. So harsh and cruel. And, and when you're the offended person, when you're the person that's, that's been attacked, you have to be careful because it doesn't justify a wrong spirit. Forgiveness, reconciliation where possible, letting your speech be seasoned with salt so that you have a right response to people. Great peace have they which love thy law and nothing shall offend them. Nothing will cause them to stumble. Relational conflicts can mess up your spirit, whether it's with your spouse, your children or parents, friends, family, church, brothers and sisters. We have teaching in the Bible about how to make things right, so it must mean that things can go wrong. We wouldn't have the solution if it wasn't addressing a problem that did and will exist. Matthew 18, if you want to go, read about how to make it right with the person that's wronged you. And as much as possible, Paul said in Romans 12, live peaceably with all men. And Jesus said in Matthew 5 that you should reconcile. Brother Drury taught on this not too long ago that that is ahead of worship in the words of Jesus. But then there's this thing, and I've alluded to it already, where people just give themselves permission to think in a way that is just against the Bible. Now, you've heard me say this before, maybe, if you were listening or if you were here. Uh, but I don't, I know this is shocking. I don't always have the right attitude. Sometimes I have a bad spirit. I know it's shocking. But, but, a long time ago, I made up my mind that I will never give myself permission to have a bad spirit. And when I know I do, and the way I know I do is because I have a Bible, and I read it and study it and try to memorize Scripture. The reason I know I have a wrong spirit is because I've done something, acted in a way or felt in such a way that Jesus would not do, and the Bible teaches is wrong. So now I've got a challenge. I've either got to ignore the Bible or I've got to repent. I've got to have an attitude adjustment. So what concerns me 
is when people make exceptions for themselves. Well, I know I shouldn't, but you do anyway. David had to know better. He knew better, but he chose wrong when he knew better. I'm not talking about immorality right now. I'm talking about a spirit that leads to who knows what. It starts with the wrong spirit, with the wrong way to see life, with giving yourself permission or making an exception for yourself. It seems like people get in a lot of trouble like that. Don't give yourself permission. And then David surrendered to temptation. And I don't have time to even go into that, but that's what Psalm 51 is about. We have an advocate. We can confess our sins. We can make things right. Amen? No, I'm going to do something that uh, I'm watching the clock very carefully that normally we don't do so much and that's just read some scripture to you and you're going to see them on the screen. But I want to show you some right spirit scriptures. Matthew 5 and 1. Seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn their spiritual condition, I believe it means, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, the submissive, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. And I believe those verses refer to initial salvation, coming to God, being filled with the Holy Ghost. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God or children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It isn't good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hid. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it gives light, gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5-7, through Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes that I read to you, the attitudes that should be in the citizens of the kingdom of God. And Jesus kind of summarizes that by saying, you see, you need to live like this because you're salt and light and people see how you live. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-7, indicators of a right spirit. Though I speak with the tongues of men and the angels, but have not love, I am become sounding brass, or a clanging symbol. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. King James, charity, this is agape love, the love of God. Love suffers long and is kind. Love Oh, let me back up on that. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. 
is not provoked, thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Galatians 5, 19. But the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. All these are bad, right? Bad spirit. Envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the, and the like. I always want to quote King James, so that's why I mess up reading New King James. And like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wrong spirit. Here's the right spirit. But the fruit of the spirit, fruit singular, this is what the fruit, the spirit produces in your life. A right spirit produces love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, we have the Holy Ghost. Let us also walk in the Spirit or walk in obedience to the Holy Ghost. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. If you don't mind, please stand. I am not going to read my next verse. But you may want to uh, just consider this, 2 Corinthians 11. Paul said, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I've espoused you to one husband. You belong to Jesus Christ. And he said, but I'm, I'm, I fear, I'm worried about you, he said, over the Corinthian church. That in the same way that Satan beguiled Eve, that you have been corrupted away from the simplicity, the purity of your relationship with Jesus Christ. What concerns me about our culture, about Christians who call themselves Pentecostals, concerns me about all of us, is that we want a right spirit, but our right spirit will be tested, we will be tempted, we will be tried over and over and over again. And it's not going to be a one-time deal tonight or at any other day or night. But day by day, We should ask the Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew in me a right spirit. I want to be right with God. I want to be right with you, all of you, my brothers and sisters. I want to be right. I want to have a clean heart. Brother Kraft's words echo in my mind in the last however many years, lots of years. Daryl, don't ever let anything mess up your spirit. Yes, sir, Brother Kraft. I hear you loud and clear. Let's pray, Lord. God of all mercies, Lord, we need your mercies. Our heart's desire, Lord, is that we would please you and I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse us from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit to perfect holiness in the fear of God. 
I pray, Lord, that you would create in me a clean heart. I cannot create a clean heart in myself. But I know, Lord, the Holy Ghost can make me clean before you, make me pure. I pray, Lord, that you would renew in me a right spirit. If over the course of time, through temptation, through tests, through hurts, Lord, that have happened in us, if our hearts, if our spirits, Lord, have been defiled and we've gotten out of sorts and we're just not clean before you, if we live upset, if we live offended, if we live angry, if we live, God, in a way that is not pleasing to you, I pray that you would renew in me a right spirit.